This week, Paul and I interview Rami Sass, CEO and co-founder of WhiteSource. In the news, Drupal Core 7 and 8 receive critical updates. Companies from a cybersecurity or companies form a cybersecurity tech accord, and avoiding XSS in React is still hard. Stay tuned for all that and more on this episode of Application Security Weekly. This is a Security Weekly production. Today's determined attackers easily bypass even the most advanced network defenses. Trying to ramp up staff to detect their back doors can cost thousands of dollars and take months, even years. With Active Countermeasures AI Hunter, we enable junior analysts to detect even the most advanced back doors in a matter of hours. Sign up for a demo and purchase our product today by visiting activecountermeasures.com forward slash ASW. Active Countermeasures, make every analyst a hunter. IT Pro TV, binge-worthy learning for IT teams. Why is it binge-worthy? It's learning presented in an engaging and entertaining talk show format that beats voiceover PowerPoint snooze tests. Watch over 3,300 hours of content in their on-demand library, on your desktop, on the go, or in the comfort of your own living room. IT Pro TV is IT training you and your team actually want to watch, which means a better return on your learning investment. Get started with IT Pro TV for teams by visiting itpro.tv forward slash security weekly and start a seven-day free trial and get 30% off standard or premium IT Pro TV memberships using the code SECWEEKLY30. Welcome, everyone, to episode 13, our 14th episode of Application Security Weekly. I am, of course, your host, Keith Hoodlett, and I'm excited to be joined by my illustrious co-host, Paul Asadorian. You know, I'm feeling illustrious today, so thanks for that. I'm also advertising for, like, where I ate breakfast. Sorry about that. Let's <laughs> put that off camera. Good. <laughs> What's going on, Keith? How are you? Good, man. Good. It's, it's good to be back from RSA last week. You know, literally, I spent all of an hour on the show floor, and uh, it was entirely worth that one hour. I ran into Haroon Mir of Thanksed, uh, formerly or uh, well, well known for their Canary tool. And uh, yeah, no, it was, it was good to catch up with a few people that I really wanted to see. And it's bigger than ever, though. I got to tell you, those boots, man, they make them big. Uh, so yeah, it's good to be back in you know home and in recovering from RSA as it were. Some of those booths are bigger than my home. You like you wouldn't believe. You walk in and I gotta say one of the coolest booths though that I did see this year that I actually really enjoyed was Duo's booth because the way that they set it up is they kind of had like that overhang square that it was around the space of their booth and it, it was almost like that two factor seamless authentication was the theme of their booth because you could just like walk right in, look at demos, talk to people. But the inside of like the block that was kind of their roofing for the booth was actual like video. So you could actually watch uh, demonstrations and stuff inside the booth just by kind of walking into it seamlessly. Uh, so no barriers, no like gateways, no walls of any kind, which I thought was uh, very telling for the way that they designed it. It was kind of cool. Awesome. So uh, I'm going to do a couple of quick announcements here, Paul. Uh, I know that we have that interview with Rami here mm -hmm. after this second uh, segment in the second half of the show. So. A couple of few quick announcements here. First, go to itpro.tv and uh, slash security weekly. Use the code secweekly30 to try it for free for seven days and receive a 30% off your monthly membership of the lifetime of your active subscription. Uh, actually, I really like itpro.tv personally. I think it's a great platform for learning things, especially in a 
bit of a more interactive way than some of the other traditional e-learning resources out there. So definitely go check that out. Also, check out Source Boston 2018 from May 9th to the 10th. Go to sourceconference.com and register using the code SW75WMKW to get a $75 off a $75 off discount. Uh, Paul, you're speaking there, if I'm not mistaken. I think we've covered this a few times at this point. Uh, I, I believe I'll be there, actually. I'm, I'm hoping to be, honestly, depending on uh, my schedule and how things go on that end. So uh, that will be a lot of fun. Last announcement I'll make uh, is we have content available on demand for securityweekly.com slash on demand. This material is available free to our Security Weekly listeners and subscribers. Be sure to check out the state of the penetration testing uh, report, or in this case, on demand uh, segment by BHIS. John Strain and that team is awesome. I'm a bit of a fanboy, not going to lie. Uh, so, with that, we're going to actually start this week with the news, Paul, uh, just because we have a lot of interesting things to cover based on uh, recent events. And of course, RSA last week was no shortage of kind of, you know, news that was coming out. Biggest one that seems to be going around, though, Paul, is Drupal 7 and 8 having some updates. Have you read anything about Drupal getting 2 in the news this week, Paul? Yeah, I saw that there was new exploits. I haven't looked into our new vulnerabilities, uh, likely associated exploits with them. I have not really read into it to see exactly, you know, what the fuss is all about. I do have some listener feedback on Drupal as we've been talking about it in the past couple of weeks. Um, I haven't, excuse me, consumed that... um, feedback yet uh, but i will disseminate it on the show uh if you know provided the person says i don't want you to talk about this on the show uh so but you know i don't think i have anything new to share on drupal other than there's new vulnerabilities and uh i haven't read them sorry no it's it's okay don't don't worry about it honestly this one is brand spanking new as of i think wednesday of this week honestly so there was the the drupal getting two vulnerability that i think we covered back a few weeks ago uh on on this show uh, that was interesting, but this latest set of vulnerabilities that were patched are considered kind of like the spawn of that Drupal get into patch coming out uh, more recently. So what ended up happening is Drupal 7.x, 8.4.x, and 8.5.x all got patched on April 25th uh, with a remote code execution vulnerability that is actively being exploited in the wild uh, right now. So it's CVE 2018-7602. Uh, and effectively, what has happened here is that remote code execution allows for attackers to take over Drupal pages and servers. Uh, and so from there, they can do things like, you know, put in malicious JavaScript, uh, you know, try to deliver ransomware, but also just, you know, make them part of a botnet, you know, build persistence and just kind of hunker down and wait. So uh, one so, of yeah. the um, interesting things is over, you know, the past several years, you know, we've covered when major vulnerabilities are announced in in major products or sometimes smaller products as well. And oftentimes what happens, and I think we even saw this with um, Spectre and Meltdown too, more recently, and several other vulnerabilities is the company discloses the vulnerability to the community. Then my theory is that others in the community or maybe other developers that are working for that company or like, well, that was that was really bad. Like there was a vulnerability. And like, I wonder what other vulnerabilities we can find. And then like a couple of weeks later, you'll see another announcement like, oh, we found or someone else found another vulnerability and we fixed it. I'm not sure if that's a good or a bad thing <laughs> that happened. I mean, it's good that we're finding vulnerabilities and fixing them, but bad that we hadn't found them before, you know, this like major announcement and then kind of like forced, not forced, but... 
uh, uh, like made that road for the community to say, hey, come look at our software even more to see what other vulnerabilities you can find. I've seen this countless times in the past, Keith. It's a situation of where there's smoke, there's fire. Uh, and effectively, that's exactly what happens here, right? You find a little bit of smoke, you say, oh, yeah, we, we put the kibosh on this one little thing. And uh, and then people are like, mm, okay, so this is definitely a part of the code base that's maybe got some problems. Let's go dive deeper. Mm -hmm. And it happens in, in bug bounty programs all the time, believe it or not. I mean, especially when you have people... Uh, that have a pretty wide open scope in their bug bounty programs, what you'll find is uh, if they have one site that's vulnerable and you start enumerating all of the same uh, you know, general pages, but you look at country-specific top-level domains uh, or even just some of their other instances where you're like, hmm, I wonder if they happen to be wanting, running WordPress or have a WordPress server associated with that address. And then suddenly you're like, yep, and there's WP Admin and off to the races. Uh, so... It definitely happens in, in the world of bug bounty hunting, and it, it happens, quite frankly, in you know traditional security research as well, such as the Spectre and Meltdown vulnerabilities. In this case, same here with, with Drupal, which is if you find one bit of code that is probably bad, you can pretty much guarantee, not, not 100%, but pretty close, that there's probably more bad code related. Uh, and in this case, specifically, uh, what you actually end up having is the hashtag or the pound symbol uh, character used in its URLs was what led to this flaw actually coming into existence to begin with. Um, so to that end, they've, they've basically mudged the way that they handled that input of that character in URLs, which led to the remote code execution, which in turn led to obviously the second set of problems that have come out. Uh, and, and to that end, Checkpoint actually has a really good article on this that we'll link in the show notes. Uh, shout out to Apollo Clark, who actually linked that to me. Uh, just a few moments ago. So uh, yeah, needless to say, this went from, I think it was like a 22 out of 25 NIST rank to a 25 out of 25 NIST rank, pretty much like overnight because of active exploitation. Uh, so yeah, this is definitely probably the last we're going to see of Drupal flaws. Uh, people tend to get on a tear on these things for a little while, as you've, you've pointed out, Paul. Uh, I don't know if you have any kind of final thoughts on that before we jump to the next story. Uh, I don't. Got it. That's all good. It's all good. So the next one that I wanted to cover was story number two under bugs, breaches, and more. Warning that the link does have an autoplay video or associated with it when you go there. So, ugh. but that aside, uh, so effectively what happened is there was a company called Local Blocks. One word. Uh, it's a Bellevue, Washington company that had an open S3 bucket out on the internet found by none other than Chris Vickery, who seems to have a hound dog ability to find these things out on the internet and report them. Uh, but this was a company that aggregated data of individuals from places like Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, uh, even real estate sites like Zillow, and was building what they called 3D profiles of individuals for, I don't know, all sorts of maybe advertisement sales reasons, or even uh, starting to identify individuals uh, for political advertisements, etc. And it, what ended up happening in this case was Chris Vickery found an open S3 bucket that had a single LD dumps containing file. Uh, that went unpacked, unpacked to 1.2 terabytes uh, of information on 48 million individuals. And it was human readable, which is even worse because there was new line delimited JSON data uh, that was included as part of that, including physical addresses, employment information, job histories, uh, as well as, of course, scraped Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter profiles. This is crazy, Paul, that we're getting into such a world where this can even exist. Uh, I mean, we've heard about this a lot lately. What are your thoughts on, on kind of this situation in particular? I mean, bad S3 bucket, you know, you know, no biscuit. But at the same time, it's like that they even can collect this stuff is kind of scary. 
Well, uh, a couple of things. Uh, first, I think it's kind of that like high level privacy. Oh my God, freak out kind of thing. And I think that uh, an overarching kind of uh, theme we've seen this year and, and in the past, certainly since the internet was created, maybe even, is that when you share information about yourself on the internet, it's usually public in there forever. Now, certainly that has evolved greatly. And we like to think that the information we share with any provider that they've told us how they share it, who they share it with, if they share it, when they share it, um, and you get the option if you want them to share it or not. Certainly, Facebook is under huge scrutiny, uh, you know, for this and, and others as well. Um, and you know, we like to think here at Security Weekly, we do that with people's data as well, right? Like, if we <clears throat> get any of your data, we're very upfront with what we collect, if we share it, who we share it with, how long we share it, the whole thing. Um, and obviously, we don't want to share it with anyone else. Now, in this case, people have shared information about themselves with these social media networks. I think there's a perception uh, that there's some type of privacy that maybe only people that I've chosen to connect with can see all of my data, that the social media networks won't take my data and go sell it to uh, someone else. Although you have to read their and you know, EULAs to figure that out and who reads those things anyway. Biggest what lie I, on the internet that you've agreed to those terms and conditions right? and actually read them, right? <laughs> now, what I think is uh, even more interesting than all of that, because we'll be talking about privacy as it relates to your data on the internet from now until the end of time, but I think more interesting is if you <clears throat> stand up a company today and say, well, I'm going to scan the internet, I'm going to try and figure some stuff out about people, and I'm going to try hitting social media, seeing what's publicly available on social media, you're likely going to use some type of bot for that unless you outsource you know, thousands of people that are doing it manually, you're likely going to have some type of automation that we term as a bot. Uh, we just did um, a webcast with Distill Networks that is uh, product helps organizations who especially, I mean, of all kinds, but especially those larger companies. And I'm not saying any of these companies are their customer, by the way, either. I'm just saying that their technology is designed to help companies. One thing that it does is help you block what they deem as bad bots. And so if they have done the research and discovered that there's this bot running around that's basically scraping people's profiles to collect a database to maybe go sell it, that's typically something that a large social media company is going to be like, yeah, no, that's, that's not cool for a lot of reasons and can actually block that traffic. Now, obviously, there's lots of ways to collect that data. Uh, one could also argue that you could use Google to collect that data as well as what's publicly available on social media sites is also indexed by Google. Theoretically, you could go through Google. And if Google is not paying attention to, uh, to certain kinds of bot traffic, which you can imagine that problem at scale, uh, you could glean that information from third party search engines. Maybe Google does a, a good job at one thing, but not another thing. And then you can use Bing and maybe some other service that is already archiving that data. So there are good bots, right? Because you don't want to block Google Google's bots from getting to your site because then you're not in their search engine results. So right. I, that's those reasons I think this is kind of interesting. But Paul, didn't we solve all of this with robots.txt? Wasn't that supposed to like you know prevent all of these problems to begin with? <laughs> yeah, it's funny. Rami talks about user agent uh, spoofing. And he says, there's actually a small percentage that don't change their user agent. He's like, but most bots today will actually emulate some specific... Uh, user agent that is a legitimate browser and more and more are emulating mobile browsers as you and I know and many of our listeners, right? Typically the mobile uh, website 
can contain vulnerabilities that the regular website doesn't. Uh, also, yep. your API that maybe your mobile application is accessing is is you know exposed in the mobile app. And there's actually, um, I, and I don't know if it's a huge trend right now, but Rami says there are uh, trends they're seeing where. Uh, mobile phones are getting taken over and he believes that's going to be uh, for bot usage right and he believes that's going to be more uh, prevalent as time goes on because as we move into faster you know 5g speeds and phone technology gets better such that it has better battery life he's like the advantage right now is the phone is on all the time and connected you know through your carrier right uh, but there's some bandwidth in, in battery limitations today i think as those things get solved we're going to see obviously they're uh, are more phones that are connected via the internet and uh, are smartphones than there are computers. So I, I can certainly see, you know, that that being one vector to collect this information. And I think it really, it truly ties back to web application security because I had not considered it before I came across Distill, like how important it is to pay attention to this and all of those benefits. I mean, there's performance benefits, there's security benefits, because, well, if you can tell it's a bad bot, a good bot, or a person, and know the difference between all three. That's a huge win for security, yeah. right? And you can also like basically wipe out a whole bunch of data from ever getting to your analytics engines, however you're analyzing that data, and just say, that's known bad traffic. Like We just don't even analyze that. Then you can look at what users are actually doing. So there's a whole ton of benefits that I think really kind of tie into this one story that um, really ties back to your web application security. And what is your strategy for dealing with bots in your web application? Um, I, I think is a, I don't, I still think that there's a lot of evangelism that needs to happen on this topic because it's not often related back to application security. Well, and in some ways, it's kind of a double-edged sword, right? Because you want to think about, uh, first of all, how much are you spending in compute time on your Amazon instances or your Azure instances for bots, right? Like sure. how much, it, how many dollars is that per month? Yeah, that's a huge just, justification, right? Because the, uh, the technology, not to get, I mean, this still is a sponsor, just, you know, full disclosure, but understanding how their technology works, they're actually dropping JavaScript on the browser. So if it's a bot or, you, you know, whatever they're rendering it in, if it's Phantom JS or whatever, it actually killing the connection before it goes back to your website. So like you said, Keith, a lot of folks are doing this research and implementing this technology and one of the primary drivers isn't necessarily security. Sure, that's a benefit. It's I don't have to deal with all that bandwidth and all those requests on the back end, and it saves me money. So I think in terms of return on investment, this is a technology you have to start looking into. And, and the other side of it, too, is when, when it comes to bot traffic in general, I mean, you've already pointed it out, right? You're going to get uh, noise in that signal that you're trying to acquire to figure out who what features are being used and you know are they using it less than we anticipated that they should be and we want to make sure that they are because we spent a lot of time and effort to build out this feature appropriately is it well, not as seamless and easy to use as we thought right um let, let alone secure right like that's the other side of it as well so there are all sorts of problems related to that i feel like this episode will be the uh privacy is dead long live privacy episode because yeah, pretty much the next the next story is kind of ironic, actually. Uh, RSA's app uh, had a leak uh, due to API API call issues uh, last week. So basically what happened was uh, Sophos ended up having their, their blog that came out with uh, issues related to the RSAC 2018 application, which, by the way, asks for pretty much all of the permissions in your phone short of being a rootkit. Uh, and what ended up happening here was they had an API call that was not properly authenticated that allowed users to automate the scraping of all of the data that was being collected by the RSAC 
application on people's phones. Now, now I read reports. Conference. I read reports, Keith, that only 120 records were disclosed via this vulnerability. I, I don't know. In again, I, I have not spoken to anyone with any authority to say whether that is true or not, or how close to the truth that actually is. Uh, however, those are the reports that that I'm seeing on the internet. Believe what you see on the internet as much as you you think you should or not, right? Um, right so right. just that caveat, throwing it out there. There's something like forty or fifty thousand people that registered for RSA. I mean, if you include vendors and media and and attendees and and everyone, so to me that's a huge disconnect. Obviously, um, so I'm not sure you know why only certain. They're just these couple of hundred people. Uh, their data was was leaked, and the other, you know, fifty thousand or whatever weren't. The other interesting thing is it it comes to, uh, I think, an interesting detail when it comes to breaches in, in in data. So you know, you may use a third party to provide some service to you. I think it's one thing if that third party has some vulnerability in associated exploit. It's another thing if they have your data uh, or your customer's data, right? I mean, it's not really, you know, your data, right? It's, your, it's the RSA attendee's data. The RSA is collecting it. If a third party leaks that data, I think there is some responsibility. Um, and depending on the legislation of your choosing, there is some responsibility that you basically trusted this third party with your customer's data. Therefore, like shame on you, you should have done a better job of validating your third parties. And, and I totally get that. Um, I think that scenario could play out in a number of different ways. However, I don't think it translates to like, I've got a vulnerability on my website because I've got some other third party code like Facebook code uh, that's in there. And if the vulnerability is in Facebook, I mean, that's really not my fault because I'm not, I didn't say I'm giving data to Facebook and Facebook lost it. Like, I think there's two totally different uh, scenarios there when we talk about uh, third party risk. And so data is one thing and data privacy vulnerabilities and exploits, I think, are a different thing. And what Farrow was saying, actually, last night on the show, uh, he's the uh, founder of NetSparker, right, was that when you include code from Facebook on your site, it's the other way around, too. That means, essentially, anyone that finds a vulnerability in Facebook could potentially execute data on your site via cross-site scripting. I mean, you're essentially giving Facebook cross-site scripting access to your site, Uh which is, which is kind of scary in and of itself. So, you know, this whole thing about, and, and this is problem is just going to get worse and worse as, uh, I mean, we don't really today develop a lot of custom in-house applications, right? When you're putting up a web property, as you well know, and many of our listeners know as well, right? You put up a web property. I want some comment feature on my blog. I mean, most people don't even use what's included in the blog, right? You're using Discuss or you're using Facebook or some other third-party system that's essentially running code on your site. And so this all extends out into how much you trust your third parties and how you validate your third parties. Now, when we put it in the conference context, this is a very common thing for a conference to outsource, right? Conference happens once a year, maybe, maybe sometimes multiple times a year. And so they're not going to have a team of developers that are working on an app because their app isn't, I mean, their app is not how they're making money. They're making money off their attendees and sponsors. Their app is just like an added benefit for them. So they're going to outsource this to someone else and, and how much you trust that outsourcer is, is really, and there are vendors that are doing now uh, becoming more in the spotlight in information security that are doing that third party vendor risk uh, management. And, 
how I, you know, if you can somehow limit things like this happening, although I still think it's very difficult, even if you have maybe some of those tools and companies helping you, like how do you truly know uh, if your data is going to leak or not? And so in this case, Paul, um, th that is a, a really big problem to try and deal with in general with the, you know, uh, ubiquity of third party code today. Right. Uh, and so that's, that is just a huge problem set. But then on top of that, so just to go back to kind of what you stated early uh, in that is uh, this article specifically that we've cited is 114 individuals uh, that had their data accessed. Uh, so yeah, in, in this case, though, the problem that I saw here is this was a hard coded password that that ultimately led to the issue via an unsecured API. And the hard coded password was in the application. So anyone that unpacks the APK gets the hard coded password and they're off to the races. Like that in itself um, screams hygiene problems in ways that I can't even imagine, right? Like, well, yeah, because there are hard coded password there. If, but there are solutions just similar to actually how we work with containers, right? That are scanning the containers as you're deploying them, saying, well, you know, that's got a vulnerability or that's got a hard coded password. I mean, there's open source tools that you can run your containers through that will find. I mean, Docker will do that for you, right? When we look at the uh, an Android application, for example, there's also companies that, like if you're a company making your money, your revenue comes from writing Android applications, I, I think you should have, I don't know if you should be forced, we could have that you know regulatory compliance debate maybe some other time, but I think you should <clears throat> have some process in your build system that's pointing out, like you said, Keith, an easy vulnerability, there's a hard-coded password in my, in my app. Um, uh, that just seems to me like a really, it seems to me like when we talk to white source, uh, coming up next, like that's a really, you know, kind of like, why didn't I think of that moment where I should just be checking to see if I've got vulnerable libraries or hard coded passwords in my development process. Those tools exist today. Yeah, exactly. And so that, that the third party company that made this didn't even like bother is concerning in and of itself. So there are a lot of tools out there that can make this easier for you. And, and quite frankly, I mean, there's tools like Git Rob and Apollo, who is probably actively watching the show right now because he keeps giving me some feedback here on Slack uh, out on, on GitHub that actually let you go and find these things. There's a couple others like Truffle Hog as well uh, that I think we've linked to in a, in a past show as part of our learning and tools segment that will help you go and look for things like hard-coded passwords, secret keys, etc., all in uh, in GitHub for private or public repositories that you're working with. So um, there are ways to do this that you can actually go and look for that in your code base today, and people should definitely check that out. Yeah, uh, and one I guess, other story that I wanted. I, I guess just one last note on that story, Keith. A great start is if you're uh, engaging with a third-party vendor. A great question to ask them is how their development process works, and they're remediating these vulnerabilities before they make it to production. Now it's. It sounds easy for us to ask that question, but typically, like if you think in this example, there was probably you know someone whose responsibility it was to procure this app, and and they're not an application or security you know expert or even have enough knowledge to be able to ask that question and understand what the the answer means. Like their job is completely different, and I think we've got some education to do, especially on this front of engaging with third parties to make sure that. People who are not security experts can ask the question and start doing some of the vetting uh, to, to prevent this from happening in the future. You mean like a framework, Paul? <laughs> More like a, a guideline or a standard? <laughs> <laughs> so speaking of kind of like guidelines and standards, by the way. And best practices? Uh, so 
so there was a, a cybersecurity tech accord that was announced actually last week during RSA, signed by a number of, of large companies uh, that basically came forward and said uh, they're committed to four areas of, of kind of development and working together to make the Internet a safer place. Uh, so some of those companies on the list, by the way, and, and I'm going to talk a little bit about a couple of them are, uh, in this case, Cisco, Cloudflare, Facebook, uh, HP Incorporated and HP Enterprise, Microsoft, uh, Tenable, actually. So they're on there. LinkedIn, which is now actually a Microsoft property. So interesting that they're listed separately. Uh, GitHub and Oracle, uh, believe it or not. And so a number of big companies, CA Technologies, as well as on there and others, you can go out to the site that's linked under, I think it's story number, let's get the number here, right? Story number one under the If You Build It section uh, that actually links back to the tech accord itself. But these companies came together and basically said, look, we're going to commit ourselves to four areas uh, that we want to make sure as technology companies we push forward uh, in as a united front, which is strong defense. Uh, so a number of those companies probably have their work cut out for them, namely probably Microsoft and Oracle. No offense, which I think was really interesting and probably why you didn't see Google listed as part of that uh, list capacity building and collective action. So it was kind of interesting to see this announced last week. It, it flew under the radar for RSA because of all of the noise that comes out of RSA. But it was interesting to see these companies come together and say, look, we're, we agree to a non-aggression uh, sort of uh, feedback loop where we're not going to do aggressive or offensive research and we're not going to help governments do offensive research for that matter. Uh, we're gonna strengthen each other's and our own code bases and build toward capacity and collective action toward making the world a better place and a, str a safer internet. I thought this was pretty cool, Paul. Any thoughts on this? Did you get a chance to look at this well, at all? Well, I, I think that uh, conducting security research and finding vulnerabilities uh, has a positive effect of making the world a better place in, in terms of security. So I don't necessarily agree with that aspect of it. I mean, the rest l looks pretty cool. Uh, and, you know, we'll see if they can actually affect change, which is the hardest part, you know, about doing any of these kind of... Uh, uh, conglomerations, if, uh, if you will. So, yeah, I mean, I can see not helping governments, you know, I mean, maybe do you help your, I don't know, I guess that's debatable. And that's one of those things like, uh, so you got to think about like the not helping governments, right? So if you're Google Project Zero and you find a really bad vulnerability and you report it to US CERT, is that helping governments? Because does US CERT end up having to, by one way or another, back channels or what have you, pass it off to the CIA or the NSA or others? Um, it's, it's interesting to see that there are companies on here that are missing, such as Amazon, mm -hmm. such as Google. Um, and, and yet at the same time, there are companies on here that are surprising because of the issues around privacy, such as Facebook. Um, and then Microsoft down there as well is, is also interesting as kind of standing up because they're usually the target of a lot of vulnerability research. Um, but it was nice to see, you know, companies like Tenable, like GitHub, uh, like Carbon Black and Bitdefender, like CA getting involved because it's not just uh, companies that are involved in the process of security, but also companies that are in the process of, of helping or in the business of helping uh, development, which is pretty awesome to see as well. Um, I don't know. I was enthused by this. Dell is on there in terms of, you know, laptop manufacturers uh, and a number of other big companies. So this was pretty cool. It flew under the radar and definitely I think people should check it out. Um, overall, it'll be interesting to see who joins uh, mm. because in this case, they do say that they are open to adding additional members. Um, without any sort of, you know, uh, real limitations to do so. You can just join as a private signatory uh, for either large or small companies who are trusted and have high security standards. So I thought that that was pretty cool. I'm trying to see if there's any other major stories I want to hit this I wanted weekend. to just the talk the FDA one. 
Yeah. Where yeah. FDA is seeking congressional authority to require new medical devices to be patchable, have a software bill of materials, and be covered by a coordinated vulnerability disclosure policy. I think those are interesting, and the devil's really in the details, because what, is it, what does it really mean to be patchable? What does that mean? I mean, certainly when we talked about hotel key cards last night, and we're like, yeah, it's patchable. Someone, a person has to go around to every single door lock in the entire hotel and apply some type of firmware update was the theory. That still means it's patchable. It's just not easily patchable. So I think that, you know, anytime uh, a, a body like the FDA gets involved, it really comes down to interpretation of the laws, standards, guidelines, requirements, whatever you want to call them in, in any uh, capacity. I think it's a good thing on the surface, but it really uh, to uh, allow companies to change medical device companies uh, to force them to change, which I mean, regulation is essentially forcing companies to change. Uh, if that will have, you know, a positive outcome uh, or not, it also has to be balanced with, uh, you know, not stifling innovation uh, as well. And, and to that end, I think be, you're right. Being patchable and easily patchable are two very different things. And so uh, I can see companies mincing words here where, yeah, it's patchable, but they have to send it back to us uh, physically, right? Uh, and, and I don't know, like how many people are actually going to do that? Like a like a big recall of that kind, right? Like, is it actually going to happen? Are they going to send out USB devices in the mail, heaven forbid, uh, to get people used to that, you know, bad update or bad patching process as a result. I think there's room for opportunity here, but there's also room to do it wrong. And uh, as I've, I've heard from others in the industry, the FDA tends to provide, you know, guidance, but they don't really enforce, um, well, they do enforce, but they don't necessarily say, here's the guidance on this, but right. uh, they don't necessarily follow up with the uh, enforcement mechanism associated with that guidance, right? Um, the thing that I thought was kind of interesting as well, though, is the software bill of materials is kind of like asset management for the software that you have in your applications, um, which is not a trivial thing to solve necessarily. But I think that there's definitely room uh, and, and opportunity here for uh, businesses such as White Source and others yeah. uh, to go in and say, hey, not only are we providing you like insight into vulnerabilities in your third party libraries, but here's your bill of materials of the things that you've used, uh, the third party or, or even built in that can give you an idea of functionality that you've put into your application and where that lives, uh, which would be cool. The last one that, you know, somewhat of personal interest to me, you know, full disclosure, I work at Bug Crowd, was the coordinated vulnerability disclosure policy. Seeing uh, the, that the government has run bug bounty programs, uh, the adoption uh, and the guidance by an entire industry sector or for an entire industry sector, such as saying, uh, thou shalt run a coordinated vulnerability disclosure policy is good for business, but it's also really good for uh, researchers out there that find vulnerabilities in products and, and need a way to report them uh, that doesn't cause them to be, you know, put in jail for years on end because of CFAA violations or, uh, you know, hit with in incredible uh, fines that they have to pay to the company when they do it as a, a civil suit as opposed to a, a legal or a federal suit. So that'll be interesting in and of itself if they give any sort of CFAA, um, I don't know, clearance or authorization for any sort of uh, testing that has to take place with medical devices, that is yet to be seen, but it'll be interesting to figure out what happens with that. And uh, with that, Paul, unless you had anything to add, I think we're actually over time for this segment. So uh, any any last thoughts before we uh, skip into the next segment? The uh, 
off-topic story from last night, Keith. I don't know if you, you caught it. I know you weren't on last night's show, but I didn't talk about it on last night's show. And I don't know if you saw this in the news, but there was a case of super gonorrhea. I don't know if you... Oh, I, no. saw, I saw that term and I cringed. I was like, wow, as if like gonorrhea isn't bad enough. There's super gun. But essentially what it boils down to is there's a strain uh, of this virus that uh, was resistant to antibiotics. Uh, there was a case in the UK and uh, they ended up finding an antibiotics to, to treat this patient. But uh, they were documenting how it was resistant to a lot of other antibiotics that normally normally work. And, you know, I think, of course, we, we kind of think of the parallel between malware and, you know, different types of uh, viruses. Uh, but I thought that was kind of interesting. And if you, you saw that and you're probably immediately kind of grossed out when you hear the term super gonorrhea, you're not alone. <laughs> I was immediately thinking of Johnny and his hot wings experience last night, quite frankly. But, mm. uh, but with that being said, uh, yeah, I mean... It's interesting to think about this this problem set because effectively every time you come up with a better mousetrap, the mouse figures out how to get that cheese a different way, right? And so uh, this is the world we live in both physically from, uh, you know, bacteria, viruses. The flu this season was incredibly right. bad, for example. Um, and then at the same time, we see it uh, replicated uh, in, in what we do professionally. Like people are getting better at delivering malware or ransomware. People are getting better at finding vulnerabilities in code bases. Uh, and, and to that end as well, code sharing is a very real thing and it happens quite a lot. You know, uh, and, so- and just really quick along those lines, I think medical and, and those that have watched the show for some time and, and shows on this network know that medical analogies that translate into security, I'm not a big fan of really kind of like at all, right? And this is also kind of, it is a bad example as well because when we look at malware, for example, that's infecting systems, it may just be laying dormant and it may be causing harm and we don't find out maybe ever or maybe in a really long time and sometimes we do find out but the scarier strains of malware if you will are ones that we don't necessarily find out about or understand the motive and in fact in the medical case we covered a story in the network this week and i don't know if you saw this one keith but it was researchers found that there was malware on x-ray and mri machines uh, at hospitals and they're like, it, it wow. wasn't exfiltrating data or, you know, trying to, to get PII or personal information of any or patient records. It wasn't trying to execute ransomware and it wasn't trying to mine cryptocurrencies. And they're like, so what was it doing? And to me, that's a scariest, that's the scariest form of malware, right? Is we can't determine the intention uh, of the attacker, but we know they've gained a foothold into medical devices. And to that end, it could just be a jump point, right? That's all it really ends up being is that it was on the network as a, a way that you can move around in the network. Um, you know, it's just a gateway device at some at some degree or another as well. And if that's the case, then it's like, okay, but does it have the ability to download or accept new packages or new functionality in the way of like, um, gosh, all Flame, Dooku, Stuxnet, right. you name it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, so people are getting smarter and, and a little bit more dangerous out on the internet, quite frankly. And and to that end, it's just like, yeah, people need to start practicing safe software, just like they need to start practicing safe sex. I don't know. Uh, but <laughs> <laughs> it's a great, great words of wisdom from Keith. <laughs> what can I say? You know, uh, I, too, was once young and in middle school and had to go through that educational course, uh, just like many other people. So <laughs> with that. Uh, I just want to say that we're going to go ahead and take a short break, come back to a pre-recorded interview with Rami Sass, CEO and co-founder of White Source. Stay tuned. 
Layered Insight is the industry's first embedded security approach for containers. Trusted by Global 1000 Enterprises to secure their containerized applications, it's the only solution that requires no root privileges, has zero dependency on the underlying infrastructure, and is fully portable across any container environment. Unified DevOps and SecOps, enabling the rapid development of containerized applications without worrying about security. To learn more, please visit layeredinsight.com forward slash ASW. Innovation's a funny thing, in a cosmic sort of way. While it drives your business forward, it also exposes new risks that can slow you down. As an IT or security professional, every day you need to know, are you vulnerable? Are you compromised? And finally, are you optimized to quickly spot and resolve issues to keep your operation humming? It's your responsibility to help the organization safely and reliably implement the latest connected technologies. So how can you outsmart this little paradox? Rapid7 solutions are powered by advanced analytics and an unmatched understanding of the attacker's mindset. Visit rapid7.com to learn more about how Rapid7 products transform data into action. Signal Sciences is the industry's first web protection platform that works in any cloud, any container, any platform as a service, and any modern application architecture. The Signal Sciences web protection platform can be deployed in next generation WAF, RASP, or reverse proxy modes, giving customers ultimate flexibility and coverage. Protect your web applications with Signal Sciences web protection platform. Signal Sciences, protecting applications, connecting teams. For more information, check them out at signalsciences.com forward slash PSW. Hey, welcome back. Just a couple of quick announcements before we jump into that uh, pre-recorded interview with Rami Sass, CEO and co-founder of WhiteSource. First, BugCrowd is hiring. So after closing our Series C funding round at $26 million, we're expanding headcount across the organization. Check out bugcrowd.com slash careers or email me hoodie at securityweekly.com if you have any questions about any of those positions, need an introduction, or just want somebody to look at your resume and see where you'd be a good fit. Again, that's hoodie at securityweekly.com or for the actual listing of those uh, opportunities, bugcrowd.com slash careers. Also, Application Security Weekly is changing schedules. We're going to be recording on Mondays from 3.30 to 4.30 Eastern, starting this Monday, April 30th. Uh, for those of you listening on the podcast, you'll probably get this a little bit afterwards, so uh, you might have a double header uh, coming up. But otherwise, I hope you enjoy the show and enjoy this interview with Rami Sass. Welcome back, everyone, to Application Security Weekly. I am, of course, your host, Keith Hoodlett, joined today by none other than Rami Sass, CEO and co-founder of WhiteSource. Rami is an experienced entrepreneur and executive with vast experience in defining innovative products, leading technology groups, and growing companies from seed level to business maturity. Before founding WhiteSource, Rami founded te uh, Testology, and before that, led development efforts at both CA and at Eurekify, which was later acquired by CA, interestingly enough. Rami, welcome to Application Security Weekly. Thanks so much. Happy to be here. Awesome, awesome. Uh, Paul, glad to have you uh, You know, still with us here as well in studio, of course, uh, looking beautiful as always today. Oh, thank uh, you, Keith. <laughs> you're very welcome. Uh, so uh, real quick, uh, just to get started, um, Rami, tell us a little bit about uh, WhiteSource. Who are you guys and, and what do you do? So we're a relatively mature startup company that helps software engineering teams keep track of their open source usage and then alert them to known security vulnerabilities in the open source components that they use, help them manage compliance and licensing issues, and many other uh, open source related uh, data that we provide and uh, issues that we help them track and uh, risks that we help them uh, mitigate. 
Awesome. Awesome. Let me also, uh, so I'm going to go back and get a little bit of your history here, but uh, how long has, has White Source been a company? When were you guys founded? Uh, almost seven years ago. It was back in 2011. Awesome. And there's been quite a lot of change uh, over those seven years, I'm sure, that we'll have fun talking about here. Um, but a little bit about yourself. When did you get started in, in software development and when did you kind of find that security was a part of that that you wanted to explore further? Right. So I've been writing code since I was 14. So back in the, I think it was the eighth grade or something like that, I joined sort of the computer society in my high school and was hooked. And, you know, I was this teenager who started building computers from scratch, you know, buying off little pieces and assembling them myself and then started to write code on top of that computer and have been uh, coding ever since. Uh, my first encounter with the security world was actually at Eurekify, where we were developing an innovative system for role management as part of a broader identity management security issue. Uh, where I also met my current partners who at the time were leading the company, Ron and Azzi, they were the founder and CEO there and sort of uh, opened me up to this very interesting world of uh, cybersecurity. That's awesome. Um, one question that I do have as a general follow-up, and I want to make sure Paul gets uh, an opportunity to ask some questions as well, but uh, in your opinion, since you've been doing this for quite a while, both from writing software and, and now obviously in the security space, and I've been in the security space for some time, uh, in your opinion, what do you feel has changed the most since you've joined the industry? Well, practically everything's changed. I don't think anything stayed the same. Uh, I think it's a very dynamic and rapidly changing kind of arena where you always have this uh, arms race going on between hackers and attackers and the uh, people who try to stop them and companies who try to come up with solutions. So, you know, any given year on your, uh, on your calendar will bring with it a lot of uh, changes, a lot of new ways, new innovations, both from the attackers who keep uh, thinking up new ways to hack into system and on the defense side coming up with you know, new systems and new methods and practices to try and uh, protect the people and assets from these attacks. That's awesome. Paul, I don't know if you want to dive deeper on that. I do have a few other questions here yeah, as well I, for Rami. I had a question based on uh, some recent news and certainly news articles that we've covered in the past where a large company, and I think in the most recent example, uh, it was Linksys, maybe, or Belkin, or one of those companies. Someone essentially discovered that they were using open source software and hadn't disclosed that. Uh, and I know that's one of the things that you can uh, detect in, in a development environment. What's the risk for a company if they end up using open source software uh, and unbeknownst to them, they're using it and they haven't disclosed that and, and, and uh, released their changes out to the public? Right. So look, today we see two main risks. One, and actually the primary one, is around security vulnerabilities, uh, which doesn't directly relate to disclosure, but uh, it's the bigger risk of the two, mm -hmm. where if people take in open source components that have vulnerabilities, especially when these vulnerabilities have been made public by the community in order to try and fix them and in order to try to alert the people using them, uh, 
then that causes a big risk when you embed these open source components into your systems and then distribute your systems and sell them to your customers. And the second risk goes to what you are referring to is around licensing. And because open source, in order to even be open source, has to come with a license attached to it. And oftentimes this license will also define a few requirements. So it comes free of, of payment. You'd have to pay for it, free of charge. But uh, they do want you to disclose that you're using these components. They sometimes want you to release changes you're making to them. Or in some uh, more extreme cases, you even have to uh, disclose your entire code base and make that open source for specific kinds mm -hmm. of licenses. So most licenses are not very difficult to comply with, but if you are not paying attention, then you could just by negligence uh, find yourself not complying with the requirements and you know be in a sort of precarious situation. I've also found it interesting, and in, in by no means do I, you know, expect you to give away your secret sauce, right? But in covering vulnerabilities uh, in the past uh, 13 plus years, uh, open source software that contains vulnerabilities, the way they disclose that seems to be all over the map. Like sometimes you find it in a bug tracker, sometimes there's a public disclosure. The larger ones get a logo and a theme song and a website, and US CERT and other country certs are, are sending out alerts. But then you got all the way down to like, yeah, someone fixed something but never told anyone about it. So how how do you track open source uh, vulnerabilities and make sure that you have the best coverage possible? Right. So you are actually very much uh, correct. And this is a complex problem. There is one kind of a mainstream way to report on open source vulnerabilities, and that's to go through a process defined by Mitre and then report it to NVD, the National Vulnerabilities Database, that's a federally backed uh, institution in the US, and they have all these rules and policy on how to report, and it's the most orderly uh, way to do it, and it gets published and uh, distributed, and that's great, but you're absolutely right that not everyone is doing that process. Sometimes not everyone even knows that this process exists, and many people will simply report vulnerabilities they find in their own open source community, in their own project, maybe, on a, their own bug tracker that could also be public. Uh, so we make an effort to, one, cover uh, the NVD as diligently as we can, but also go out to other sources where vulnerabilities are disclosed and uh, sort of curate those as well in order to facilitate the reports uh, that don't end up in NVD and uh, uh, be able to alert on those to our users as well. Yeah, I, I always also find it interesting when uh, ever Linus Torvalds talks about uh, security, it, it just tends to leave you you're like scratching your head. Like, no, that was a security problem. And Linus is always like, no, nah, it's not a security problem or to hell with security. So it makes your job very challenging as not just Linus, but other developers might fix things and go, well, that's not really a security issue. But in actuality, it is, which even further compounds the problem. Yes, you're right. There is some tension, there's some built-in tension between uh, engineering and security. We see this very often inside commercial organizations. You're right, it also happens outside and in, in public communities. But uh, if you think about it, inside a company, an organization that develops software and sells some kind of commercial project program, uh, 
either if they are selling software directly or if they are selling something else that's uh, utilizing software, then by definition, the engineers have their own priorities and they need to push out new products, new technologies, develop new features, and security is not top of mind for them. They have their own schedules and milestones they need to uh, adhere to, whereas the security officers have a competing goal where, you know, the most uh, safe software is software that doesn't get released, right? So if they had their way, they would slow you down to a halt and make sure that everything you write is fully secure. So there is some sort of friction going on here uh, between the engineering part of uh, the organization and the uh, security part. And sort of our mission is life in life is to try and reduce that friction as much as we can and try and help these guys work together in as friendly a way as, as we can help them uh, work. And how is the generally the reception when a developer is pushing out code and they, oops, have a library or some open source component that's vulnerable and they get notified? It, it, have you been able to maintain like a trusted relationship and the developers say, oh, yeah, that is a problem. You know, I'll go, I'll go update it. Is that an easier process than when it's a bug in their own code? And, and how is that relationship between the security and the developers in the light of your product space? All right. So, look, it's, it's always a challenge to have engineers do that. And they always have to prioritize it against other things they have to do. Uh, so we strive and, again, invest a lot of effort into pushing the discovery of the problems as early in the process as possible. This is part of a broader theme that's known as shift left. Mm -hmm. When you, if you think about the software development lifecycle as an arrow going from left to right, where on the top leftmost side, it starts from the design and planning phase going through a, a, you know, the integration, a building, releasing and maintenance, all the way to the right, then shifting right means that you try and identify problems as early as possible in that process, uh, you know, ideally in the design or planning phase, but if not, at least at the uh, building and testing phase. And at that point in time, developers still have a relatively easy time fixing issues and replacing open source components, much more so than if you discover issues post-release or even during deployment, uh, it's a bigger hassle at that point. Yeah, and we've certainly experienced that here. Uh, you know, and I, I think the, the, the work involved in swapping out an open source component is usually much less. You might have to modify some of your code to conform with the new version of the library. That's often much less work than fixing something in your own code, but you're certainly right. Earlier in the process is, is always better. Right. No, you're absolutely right as well, uh, because upgrading an open source version basically means you are uh, using other people's work. So someone in the open source community has already went through the trouble of fixing the actual issue mm. and testing it and, you know, making sure that it works well and sort of saved you the trouble of doing that uh, work yourself. And. As a follow-on question to that as well, uh, so Rami, are there any specific examples or situations that uh, folks would know in the news where White Source would have helped a company prevent a breach or other security incident um, based on that kind of you know knowledge of bad library need to go fix sort of situation? 
Right. Uh, I think you are alluding to the Equifax data breach. <laughs> Just maybe. I mean, there's been a number of breaches lately in open source. So, right. I, I, you know, that happens to be a good one to hit on, though. <laughs> yeah, it's, I think it was very prominently uh, displayed everywhere, basically, and is very well known, maybe the most well-known breach that's uh, related to open source. And uh, we now know that it was traced back to a known vulnerability in a very popular open source component that I am sure is used extremely widely by, I would dare say, most organizations in the world even. Uh, and it sort of blew up in Equifax's face, even though I'm pretty sure they are not special, they are not especially negligent or did something that's horribly wrong by comparison to others, uh, but they did suffer horrible consequences. Uh, and also the vulnerability isn't that special. Uh, there are many similar vulnerabilities in other open source components, and it's not that difficult to fix. So the, there were patches available and newer versions available, uh, and you just needed to know about it. You just need to know that you were using the vulnerable components, and then the mitigation was relatively easy. And so based on, on seeing that and other vulnerabilities that have come about lately, are there any strong trends as an organization, especially as you're looking into open source libraries and their use more broadly, are there any trends that you're starting to recognize or observe as you grow as a company? All right, look, the main trend we're seeing is that uh, more and more companies and more and more software engineering teams in general become increasingly aware of this issue and become more sensitive to the kinds of open source components that they allow themselves to take on and become more selective and, and you know, try to keep track of these components while choosing them and while embedding them into their software. So we see a very a strong trend today of people starting to take note of what open source they're using, make sure it's uh, high quality, make sure it has good pedigree, and even track it moving forward after they may have made their choice and embedded as part of the software to uh, stay informed of new vulnerabilities as they are being discovered. Yeah, gotcha. I, I found it interesting, you know, as a penetration tester, I, I would love it when I discovered that there was some kind of open source component in the application and it's vulnerable because I have access now as the attacker to all of those resources. I can go look at that open source code. I can find information about the vulnerability. I can probably find an exploit or two or three, you know, for that particular problem. And because the organization may not know that that component's in there and know that it's vulnerable, uh, it ends up in the application. And I think that's a higher risk oftentimes than a bug in some kind of custom software that they have. Is it, I'm, I'm sure you share that, share that opinion, but in terms of risk, these tend to be, I think, higher risk for some of those reasons, correct? Right. So there's kind of a balance of risk here or distribution, different distribution of risk factors between commercial code and open source code, where in commercial code, I think overall there are more vulnerabilities uh, and they get fixed uh, slower than open source communities tend to fix their code. But because they are not publicly known, they are not as exploitable. So while open source vulnerabilities are more scarce, 
uh, they are much more easy to exploit because they are in the public domain, because mm-hmm. you have access to the code, because an attack has already been well documented and you can just copy it. Uh, so yeah, I, I agree. So uh, with that, just to confirm as well for white source, where do you folks fit into the DevOps process? Does it end up being called as like a Jenkins job after the code has been committed to a code repository? Are you somewhere sitting between the commit to the code repository and then uh, actually like having it land in the repository? Where where do you folks actually fit in terms of uh, implementation as part of that that tool set and that uh, chain of development? Right. So we actually have a very broad range of different uh, plugins, native plugins to various uh, development environments, including build and CI uh, servers, but also various different repositories and also bug trackers and others. So we try and let our users have as much flexibility as they want in plugging us in. We would normally recommend doing it as early in the process as possible and also in a continuous fashion. Normally, on average, the user would install it on their CI server and have it part of their CI process to get continuous coverage. And that works pretty well. So if it's part of your Jenkins build, then you're in pretty good state. Awesome. Given that all the trends that you're seeing and the changes that you've experienced over your career uh, in security and in development, what do you think the future looks like in this space specific to open source uh, software and vulnerabilities as they might be presented in open source software? All right. So I think it's going to be very interesting to see a, a big trend in security to go back because essentially all security, any cyber kind of security or other, at the end of the day, is protecting some piece of software. Uh, so I think more and more people will try and go deeper inside this uh, uh, sort of uh, outer layer and try and reach the actual software that's being protected and make sure that it is developed in a more secure fashion. Uh, and to do that, I think more and more people will need to start using tools that will help them achieve that goal and cover both uh, potential security issues with the proprietary code, as well as known vulnerabilities in the open source part. Uh, And I think a big part of what we will see coming in the future are more ways to help you prioritize which vulnerabilities you need to fix first, because essentially any kind of security scanning solution, doesn't matter what kind, will give you a report of many different potential vulnerabilities uh, and usually it will be more than you can handle or practically always it will be more than anyone could reasonably expect be expected to handle and i think a big part of improving the security of your application will eventually revolve around the ability to prioritize these issues and make sure that you are and mitigating the ones that are more severe on the one hand, but also the ones that really have an impact on you and your software and are not just uh, lying in some piece of dead code. It could be a real vulnerability, but it never actually gets called from your application, so it doesn't really affect you. So I do have five final questions, but before we do that, Paul, do you have any follow-up questions that you'd like to ask? 
Um, it just, uh, Rami, if people are interested in uh, checking out your, your software solutions, uh, is there uh, a demo or a free trial or you know, can they schedule uh, some time with someone to get a demo? Like, how does it work? If people are listening to this and they're like, well, I'm really interested, I want to know more, uh, what should they do next? Sure, you can just go on our website and uh, leave your, um, your uh, information and we'll get back to you to schedule either a demo or an evaluation, whatever, we do that all the time. That's awesome. And I, I, I do want to say that I've uh, spoken to some of your customers by just uh, sheer luck. Uh, I happened to run into one of my friends that works for a, a company and they said, well, we, we picked up the solution. And I'm like, how do you like it? And he had nothing but good things to say. He said it was awesome. Uh, so you passed the uh, evaluation test when we talked to our friends in the community. Right. Uh, he was very happy with your solution. So that was, so, that was good uh, to hear. I like your friend already. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Rami, are you ready for Application Security Weekly's five questions? Shoot. All right. So, what were the specs like on your first computer? Uh, it was a 386 uh, with a few megs of RAM, a few, yeah, a few, eight megs of RAM, and probably not much more than that of a hard disk. And it had two floppy disk drives. Really, wow. you were yeah. having two. You were you were the cool kid on the block if you had. Two. Yeah, because because some of the the games or the applications you ran, you had to switch disks. Yes, and you, you know, yep. you, right. You couldn't that. do that with just one drive. That's awesome. No, that, that is uh, man. That brings me way back. Mm. Uh, so right. then, from there, Rami, uh, what programming language did you learn first? And if you write any code today, what do you enjoy writing in today? So the, I think the first one was Pascal, which in all honesty, I didn't really like that much. My favorite is Java, and I've done most of my professional career writing Java, and I love it, you know, it's awesome. It's on 3 billion devices worldwide or so I hear. So, <laughs> so you're definitely uh, a lucrative market for Java development. Uh, so here's, here's a controversial question for you, Rami. Vim or Emacs, or in this case, maybe uh, Eclipse? Yeah, look, in all honesty, I don't really care. I only <laughs> had to to do either during my uh, university uh, studies and never looked back. You know, I didn't use them before. I didn't use them after. I didn't find that to be a great experience. And eh, I, I don't care. Sorry. <laughs> no, no apology necessary. Uh, you know what? I definitely would want to stay out of that uh, that uh, holy war, as it were, for developers. Uh, so that, by all means, I wouldn't want to get in the middle of that either. Uh, so then let me ask, and it sounds like this Java might be the case as well here, but um, for people that are starting to learn programming today, what language or languages would you recommend that they pick up? So look, I think J Java is a pretty safe choice and uh, I don't see it going anywhere. Um, but if you really want to sort of hope on a big trend that's going on now, I think NPM is very hot right now and for good reasons. It's very interesting and has a lot of potential. And I think even though it's been growing like crazy, we will still see growth uh, in that area over the next few years. And if, you know, depending on exactly what you're trying to do or what your favorite kinds of uh, tasks are, maybe also Python is Yeah, is Python nice. is the big one as well. Yeah, Paul and I both develop in Python. I'm actually, uh, I've learned a bit of JavaScript myself and worked with some of the different, uh, you know, libraries, frameworks, languages uh, that are around that world. And 
It's definitely growing faster than I think anyone can realistically keep up with. Uh, so right. final question for you, Rami. Uh, who would you nominate or what topics would you nominate that we cover on a future episode of Application Security Weekly? Yeah, I'm going to be a little obvious here, but uh, I think AI is becoming more and more interesting, especially around security and what security companies can and should be doing with it. And that's one. And also not very creative one, but something that, that I think it deserves more attention is women in security and women in, in the software engineering industry in general is also something that deserves, I think, more media coverage. Absolutely. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more with that, especially uh, I was really excited to see just kind of off the cuff. Uh, Parisa Tabriz uh, from Google is going to be giving the keynote at uh, Black Hat this year. So I, I was really excited to see that as well. And and yeah, there are a number of people, especially like Jesse Frizzell uh, from now, I believe, Microsoft uh, from the Docker community that I've wanted to get on the show as well. So hopefully we can start to get some of them uh, involved in application security weekly. Well, yeah, and, and my advice on that uh, topic, just to kind of chime in too, is, you know, I signed my son up for a programming class uh, and it was all boys in the class. And kind of my, my public service announcement is if you have children, regardless of gender, encourage them to get into software engineering uh, because I, I think it's really important to start that uh, at a very young age. I think my son was... Uh, seven. And when I was the same age that I started programming was at seven. So, you know, when they get to that age, I strongly encourage, regardless of gender, to get them involved uh, in the field. All right. So and my daughter is six and I'm trying to get her started now. There you go. Good job. I, I've heard that the Minecraft community is a really great way sure. to get kids involved because it's Python coding yeah. and, and, you know, kids of all ages, genders uh, and, and interest levels seem to really love that game. So I think that there's some hope uh, for, for getting that to be more of a thing going forward, which is awesome. I so, one for my daughter. There you go. Yeah. Minecraft, go ahead and grab it online. It's a lot of fun. And I think Larry's kids also play on that as well. So yes. uh, we talk about that quite a lot here on the Security Weekly Network. With that, Rami, thank you so much for joining us. And thank you, everyone, for joining us this week for another episode of Application Security Weekly. Remember to get commit and stay classy. <laughs>